0: Can, I, right, can I just check, advice. Matt?
1: Last 24 hours, has anyone actually managed to successfully piss on your house? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> has anyone oh, found man. it?
2: <laughs> no, I, 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 I tentatively checked my post this morning, and there was no, there was nothing. And in... because I was, um <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. We, we got we got to
0: mention this briefly, I think. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> there's uh, there's a guy who Matt has been tweeting about boiling centrist piss of late, especially saying how much centrist piss donating to Corbyn will boil. And it's weird because, as far as I know, we've been talking about boiling centrist piss for literal years. Yeah. And then now Melts just seem to have noticed. And they're all taking it very, very literally. (laughs) Like like trying to find Matt's address to piss through his letterbox. Or they're literally, their kitchens are stinking of piss because they're just boiling it up by the vats, like, to to send to Matt.
2: (laughs) That bloke that tweeted about asking where I live because he's he's busting for a piss.
0: He's a a Labour councillor. Yeah, I mean like <laughs> a, a Labour council. A uh,
2: Labour council. <laughs> um, so yeah, chaos. that's the caliber. Yeah. That's the caliber at the moment, guys. Anyway, that's
1: uh,
0: fantastic. But... He's locked his account, obviously melted. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: he, he did some incredible tweet where he was like, "People have <laughs> accused me of bothering animals, and they said that me and Falcon Maltese are both bald."
0: <laughs> yeah, they made, they made light of our baldness yeah. That's so good I mean even if these guys weren't bald In Geraint's terms they would be politically bald Yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> And uh, by the way I've warned Matt that I'm going to do this um, the, uh, Some of the tweets that he sent yesterday You went on a kind of um, You went around kind of being really angry at people um, I'm not angry So you know <laughs> OK, good. So, ha, yeah, I'm going to read some of them out, right? No, and then yeah, uh, Which I know you're, you're fine with. Um, this is to you. Neil Wallace. Ha ha, you absolute melt. What are you? <laughs> what are you apart from totally irrelevant? Uh, Chris Deren. Retire, Wallace. you idiot. I, I will come yeah, back to you, yeah. I promise. Um, retire, you idiot. Put yourself out to pasture, your pal. You're a seen, you are seen as a supreme melt, and you also happen to be one. Take care and love to the family, which is a bit dark. Opposing the government and opposing
1: the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course we know that the hard left famously cannot
2: tolerate any
1: dissent. Well, we know who the hard left
2: Moderates forced out by hard left in Labour purge. Who are the hard left man? Who are the hard left, Chris? Um... You know, nationalisation without compensation. Printing money. Printing money. Who associate
1: with the? You just said that we were right to right
2: wing. Hard left agenda. Printing
1: money, nationalisation without compensation. That's a hard left wing position. Hard less, The hard left. 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 The hard left.
0: Hi everyone, you're listening to Real Politics as usual for any episode concerning politics you've got myself Jack currently Twitter fugitive I do not have a personal account I can tell you to follow but you can follow my man Wario Tifo Geraint Hello. well at yep. Wario Tifo yep. yeah <laughs>
1: yeah it's still so very good to have a Twitter account I can use can definitely recommend that
0: <laughs> Yeah I God, I need a I need a fucking an alt just to tweet about people who are broadly on my side of the political spectrum, but I have minor disagreements with that I inordinately resent them for <laughs> but it's not just Geraint and I today we're joined by an extremely special guest longtime friend of the show longtime friend of the Corbin project and someone who worked very hard for it what is your role Matt you're you're, you're the spokesman I believe of the, of the campaign for fairer gambling is that right uh,
2: I was uh, uh, first of all hello everyone uh, nice to have me back thanks I <laughs> oh, really yeah, I really I really appreciate the invitation you know it's been a long time. Uh, this and is Matt's uh,
0: old cousin by the uh, way. And and and,
2: and, <laughs> and as, as I sort of descend, as I keep getting reminded into this irrelevance, it's nice to still be invited on on things every now and again. Uh, my role is, uh, well, I was with Campaign for Fair Gambling and, and I started a new campaign called Clean Up Gambling, which is ah. trying to shape, we hope, the government's pending gambling review of the 2005 Gambling Act. This was gambling legislation written before smartphones were even conceived of. So... Needs updating. So that's my public service
0: announcement. (laughs) In retrospect, yeah, I did notice that there had been a new campaign established because you, I guess invited all your Facebook friends to join it. So I'm, I'm uh, part of the community. <laughs> oh, excellent. No, to, thanks, Jack. I, I appreciate much that. I to contribute.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a bit. Obviously, the last campaign was about fixed-loss betting terminals and, and we, we got what we wanted in terms of mm. the policy change. So yeah, this is a bit more wide-ranging and a bit more kind of, I think, more exciting. And obviously, we've got old friends at the Betting and Gaming Council as well. Michael Duggar and Kevin Schofield so yeah, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's great, it's, friends, it's of great. <laughs> friends of the show friends of the show it's great to, to you keep know, in
0: I'm touch I'm beginning I'm beginning to think that maybe you know how they say oh we're all in Labour we're all socialists we're all on the same mm-hmm. side at the end of the day I'm beginning to think that maybe you and Michael Duggar and Kevin Schofield Always had very different views of the world and maybe not the same politics. And, you know, <laughs> it, these two successive times that you have been like put in opposition to these people, if you know what I mean. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't really envisage many circumstances where I'd be on the same side, apart from in the Labour Party. It's very strange. It's sort of <laughs> yes. it's such a broad church. I think you have to kind of question. Obviously, we know, look, i get mean, into too much technical waffle, but like it's a two-party system. And if you're going to try to affect any socialist change, you've got to do it through the Labour Party. So everyone's got to stay in the Labour Party, even if it winds you up so much. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you to leave. They're trying to get you to voluntarily pack your bags and then they can have it all to themselves. And these are the worst people in the world. And we can't let them yeah. have the reins of the party. And we've got to stay in the party, organise and get back in control of it. And we can do that.
0: Well, this is definitely what we wanted to get into with you because, like, it's not looking good at the moment for the left in the Labour Party, is it? And, 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 and as you say, there's just this constant effort to wind us up and get us all to just flounce out on our own accord. I mean, I haven't left yet, but in conversations I have with other people on the, you know, the disreputable radical left media circles, I am increasingly isolated, you know, as somebody who hasn't left <laughs> left the party. And I've gotta be honest, like, there's been a few things that have made me this close and, uh, and ultimately, you know, there's this Owen Jones appearance on Navarra from like 2014 where I I mean I disagree with actually a a fair bit of what he's saying on that but one thing that I did think that he got right way back before Corbyn became leader was that when people say the left in the Labour Party have just endured failure after failure well what about the left outside the Labour Party (laughs) Uh, (laughs) long roundabout things so so that's basically what's (laughs) what's keeping me in but you think it's still worth the effort then
2: Well, I just think you have to look at what now looks like melodramatic despair from our factional opponents a few years ago to realise that actually things change in politics pretty quickly. We had to endure almost this kind of histrionics from certain sections of the party about how the left is going to be in control forever. It's not our party anymore. Some MPs even resigned because they couldn't even envisage the party ever being led by the right again. Things change Michael very, very
3: quickly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's quite a few. Yeah. There's quite a few. One of them is, is at the Betting and Gaming Council now. So, like, look, I yeah. mean, things change very quickly in politics. The membership isn't as factional as, I think, the left probably thought it was, and the mm. right probably thought it was as well. The membership, the constitution of the membership can change very quickly, and I think that if... Starmerism proves to be less than a road to forming a government, then the left will be back in contention. And that's what will happen. Fundamentally, Labour members want to win an election and for Labour to be in government and to get the Tories out. And I mean, personally, I don't think the route that Starmer is plotting at the moment is the route to forming a government. And and therefore, I think the, the left can show that it has the path to power with the kind of transformative Propositional agenda that actually deals with the multiple crises that we've got coming down the track in the next few years it has the answers. And I think really people have got to stay in the party and at least try to anchor the Labour leadership to the left on certain policy issues. And if it can't do that, or if it fails to do that sufficiently, then I think we'll regain the leadership next time.
0: Well, I worry that we almost have to like, hope that they won't have good policies in order for people to see what yeah, but the right-wing agenda is being pushed here.
2: But Jack, I think even if they are successful at the ballot box, if they're successful in 2024 and they form a government, it will be a minority government or a coalition. Even if they win a majority, it will be a very, very slim majority. And then all of a sudden you're handing massive power to the socialist campaign group. They can act as a left-wing Opposite to the ERG when Theresa May had to deal with a kind of hung parliament. So whatever way you cut it, the left will have influence. Personally, I don't think that he's got a hope in hell of forming a government in 2024. But even if he were to do that, I think that the left would still wield significant power. So we have just got to just get more socialists into parliament.
0: I suppose as much as I'd like to believe that, the thing that makes it hard to believe is obviously you worked for Rebecca Long-Bailey's campaign for the leadership and she was in Starmer's shadow cabinet for all of a month before he found I think quite a spurious rationale to sack her and I guess we can get on in a bit to like the general like marginalization of the left and what's happening to Corbin at the moment the attempts to destroy his reputation but there is a worried that if ever somebody does put their head above the parapet, or even to mix metaphors, Rebecca Long-Bailey kind of put her head down and worked on the brief and was a left-winger with a prominent role. She still didn't last. And so I suppose a lot of us are thinking, well, even when we're like Rebecca Long-Bailey and we do play by the rules, we don't get a fair treatment.
2: Mm, I know. It's very frustrating. And I think a lot of Labour members and people who supported Starmer Would be surprised at the way he has quite overtly gone after the left and Mm. done Mm. things I think in a very intentional way to try to antagonize the left. Things that on the surface some may think are quite kind of subtle things but actually obviously the Rebecca Long-Bailey sacking wasn't subtle at all. (laughs) But there's been things that he's said, positions that he's taken, and just really an unwillingness to... So in the Labour Party, if you've got a policy so all the 2019 manifesto policies are existing labor policy until that policy's changed and Mm. there's a process for this and it gets approved at conference and all this kind of stuff and just the unwillingness to kind of even restate what our policies are and obviously we know that given the crisis that we're in at the moment with coronavirus jeremy corbyn and john McDonnell engaging with the government when they were leader and shadow chancellor actually brought about the furlough scheme that scheme was effectively designed by john mcdonald it was like being propositional in times of national crisis is constructive opposition the idea that we just should not say what our policies are anymore and just retreat from the battlefield not try to shape the government's agenda and just wait till 2024 that's not constructive that is not good for the country so i do completely agree with what you're saying but the problem that I think actually the left being involved in an administration, in a leadership like Starmer's, is it's never going to be propositional anyway. So actually, Mm. Rebecca, in my view, is wasted in the shadow cabinet. And I think some of the ideas that she has, she's an incredibly talented politician, she'd be better off outside of the constraints of that kind of operation and on the back benches where she can speak her mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a big argument to be made, to be honest, for socialist campaign members not taking roles with starmer and pushing their own kind of politics from the backbenches because yeah it really feels like there is not a great continuity between the politics of corbin and corbinism and the politics of starmer and starmerism i mean there is obviously going to be some because they're using the same party as their vehicle but it seems like on almost every front starmer has tried to repudiate if not necessarily the actual reality of corbinism what corbinism was perceived as so Mm. for example on our the previous episode, I was saying how our foreign policy positions, yes, they were better under Corbyn, but I mean, they were getting a bit better under Ed Miliband anyway, and the Labour right didn't like that either. And they were not particularly radical under Corbyn or under Miliband, and now it's all the most bellicose kind of dick waving. Like, uh, <laughs> you, you know, just we're the toughest, fuck Russia, we're gonna nuke Russia, uh, I hate Russia, just basically 24 7. It feels like basically they've given up on the idea that they can shape public opinion. Uh, Like when we first started talking back in 2017, Matt, I remember saying something to you about how this was about the media, but I think it applies a lot to the current Labour Party as well, which is that they've begun to almost see themselves as observers, not to be confused with their favourite terrible newspaper, (laughs) but observers rather than, um, by the way, I loved your tweet about them when Chris Leslie,
1: I'm afraid,
0: got made chief of the Bailiffs Association. (laughs) Yeah. you were like, look at your boy or whatever. But, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's almost like they see themselves as like they're just observing politics rather than actively participating in it. And yeah. they, they can't change public opinion. The way that the Labour Party is perceived is set in stone, even though we can see for ourselves. But there's loads of people who have put in loads and loads of work over the last few years to make sure the Labour Party is perceived the way it is, including MPs and journalists.
2: Yeah, quite right. And I feel like there's not much of a political strategy. I Mm. feel like if you don't have a political strategy, the limits of it, I think at the moment, are we want to get good press coverage. And therefore, they're going to bend whichever way is most kind of expedient to get that good coverage. They want the approval of the commentariat. It's this old way of viewing politics, like the media is the gatekeepers to the public. And therefore, if you get the media on side, then you get the public on side. It's a bit like what Cameron did when David Cameron when he became Tory leader. It's like oh, I, I need to influence the BBC, so in order to do that, I'm going to try and get the Guardian on side, and then I'm going to change the logo of the Conservative Party, and I'm going to go
1: like, <laughs> to, on, a tree, on, yeah. to a
2: tree, yeah, yeah, and I'm going, to, I'm going to do the kind of husky thing, and you know, and and, and yeah, that was it. that was his. <laughs> yeah, I actually think Starmer is running a very very similar type of opposition to David Cameron because I think he's probably thought there's a rationale for this which I I kind of understand which is like the Tories have been in government for ages like Labour were how do you run an effective opposition in terms of how do you position to win an election if you're up against a long time incumbent he's thinking how can I be most effective against a long time incumbent government Mm -hmm. and I think Lots of things that Cameron did, it wasn't really propositional. He actually agreed with Labour spending plans up till 2009, and then they decided that actually we needed to make loads of cuts. And then they blamed Labour for the deficit when they got into government. But I think it's this gesturing away from what you perceive to be the things that the media don't approve of about your party, yeah in order to try to get the media on side in order to get the public on side that seems to be the broad strategy but i don't think that can work now because i, I think, think that people consume information from more places than just yeah the media and i think that there's far more economic tension there's far more regional inequality you have to speak to different parts of the country now and you have to have an offer and i feel like if we don't have an offer And if we don't have any answers, like we didn't have an answer to Brexit, we just kept voting against the deal, um, then people are just going to think, all you do is why are you equipped to deal with these problems and the problems are just going to increase
1: absolutely yeah i think a couple of things there i think probably right to highlight that it seems like almost a parallel of cameron's early strategy in his first years as tory leader but i think with the makeup of the press in britain it does change it if it's inverse if it's labor even quite a moderate center-right labor versus the tories you're simply Mm. not going to get as much of the press going along with it as you are if you're the tories trying to rebrand as nice and moderate yeah and i think that's very true this idea as well that they're almost deliberately not taking clear policy positions and saying we'll put out our policies closer to an election. I think in 2019 one issue we had is that a lot of our policies hadn't really been given a big push before they came up during that campaign and that then allowed the press to be like oh free broadband they've pulled that out (laughs) of thin air and we're we're, going to face an election in in 2024 where basically every policy we've got is going to be able to be framed like that every mm. single one yeah uh, and
2: unless you do the work to create the context as yeah. well create the context for those policies I mean that's where I think the last leadership probably could have done better at explaining yeah. the fact that there's some areas of the country that don't have good broadband or even access to any broadband or anything like that and obviously the impact on productivity and how it would pay for itself and all that sort of stuff yeah all of that work could have been done I mean you're right just drop it in just before an election campaign but this is the thing you can't dictate the narrative, and you can't set the agenda unless you're propositional. And this is a problem that, I mean, even going into the 2010 election, Cameron didn't win a majority, and he had every single newspaper backing him. I mean, The Sun ran, and this is when The Sun had millions of readers, ran him in the kind of Barack Obama image of our only hope and all this stuff. I mean, Cameron had huge institutional support. He wasn't as propositional, he did just gesture quite blandly in certain directions, but the agenda was already set because of the financial crisis. You had a big seismic event and therefore the election campaign was to a degree defined by deficit reduction, but not really. Deficit reduction didn't become an issue really until after the election and then it was used as a kind of cover to enact a very hard right agenda. So the point I'm making in a very convoluted way is I don't think this strategy will work for Starmer in the way that it did work, almost work for Cameron in getting a majority.
1: Not at all, no. Even where the situation seems similar, it just isn't. On top of all this, there's obviously a very particular crisis we're heading into in that having been impacted so badly with COVID-19, we are now facing just an absolutely seismic economic slump that with the 2008 one being I think recent enough in the memory that some of what worked in terms of selling bad policies to the public in the aftermath of that won't work now or won't Mm. work to the same extent.
2: We don't think that Starmer adopting the Cameron strategy is going to work now particularly because Mm. he's not going to get anything like the level of institutional support that Cameron got
0: Oh yeah. and and
2: in order to set the agenda You do have to be propositional. And in 2008, 2009, it's kind of exceptional circumstances leading up to the election, where the agenda was almost defined by the financial crisis and deficit reduction and all that kind of stuff. And people felt like they wanted change after that long. But what's unique about this Tory government is, I think there was a tweet I saw from George Eaton red george um, and he said that the tory vote share has gone up every election since 2005 that's unprecedented the thatcher government and the blair government they lost vote share every time they won a subsequent election to the initial one and the conservatives seem to be going from strength to strength is quite astonishing
0: just solidifying and, this base
2: yes yeah yeah and i'm sorry to say this i hope i'm wrong in a way But I think that 2017 will be our generation's 1997, in the sense that that will be the closest that we get to forming a government, which is obviously not close enough by a stretch but for a long, long time. I just cannot see how we're going to break through this conservative stranglehold without offering something totally transformative and propositional. I just don't see that coming from this leadership.
0: The only upside of that, really, of 2017 being our 1997 in our memories for years to come would be it might result in some kind of a reappraisal of Corbynism, which we can only hope, really. But yeah, I wonder how much for reluctance of all Labour leaders bar Corbyn of recent decades to try and shift the ideological dial in the country, challenge received wisdom, sort the of political consensus, how much that's solidifying the Tories' electoral base. Because if Labour keep doing what they're doing uh, under Keir Starmer, which is basically saying the conservative vision of the world is correct, then no wonder people are going to vote conservative.
2: Hmm. What's interesting as well is in that time when obviously between 2010 and 2015, you had the coalition and then the Tories won a majority because Labour was terrible. Uh, I think that that was the worst of all worlds kind of opposition. But I think it's interesting in that time, even since then, public attitudes have just got progressively more left wing. And the policies in 2017 were very, very popular. And there we had someone who the public hadn't fallen out of love with and hadn't really made their minds up on wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I think if the campaign went on for a couple more weeks, I think we probably could have won. And to argue then that that agenda is not popular, that something changed in two years that therefore made all of those policies in that direction of travel not electorally viable, it's just complete. Is completely illogical. So, yeah. so I, I find that many people in the Labour Party will have voted for Starmer because they thought he was the best salesperson for Corbynism that here was a guy mm. who he looked and sounded like, you know, ham. most people, most people ham, but what also exactly, <laughs> that, so what what, <laughs> what most people would perceive as a prime minister. So yeah. I think being reasonably hammy is quite important because like- Yeah, you David that, Cameron is a big exactly. ham, wasn't he? He's it? a big ham. Like I think you just gotta be kind of hammy and it's just that kind of aesthetic. So
0: yeah.
2: people thought, okay, here we have our own ham and he can, <laughs> he can, he can sell Corbynism. But I think they're going to be very disappointed as we learn. I think many people learn slowly, including our friends in the Spice faction, <laughs> that, that actually that actually, this was, a, this was a dream that's been missold. I think he's got his own agenda and his own politics. And you can see that by the kind of people that he's got around him.
0: Absolutely. I mean, your point about how in 2017 it turned out that... I mean, we already knew this from polling, but it turned out that the public agreed with a lot of stuff that we were saying on the left. I mean, what's fascinating is, so the consensus at the moment seems to be that Corbyn's foreign policy views, where the West was not automatically the good guy and the person with brown skin was not automatically the bad guy or a terrorist or whatever, that that was what did for Corbyn, that that was where he was out of touch with people. But in 2017 that really did not seem to be the case the Chatham House speech remains one of I think the great speeches in politics of recent years in which Corbyn correctly identified for the West's aggressive foreign policy that completely prioritises your own people above the humanity of those elsewhere in the world has not actually like protected people in this country Mm. and has not succeeded on its own terms so I think that maybe what's happened in the last couple of years is that the perception of Corbyn and his beliefs was allowed to take precedent over what they actually were which when expressed clearly as in the Chatham House speech people did find very agreeable
2: Yes, I think that's what happened. I mean, look, after 2017, there was a huge, very well-funded effort to assassinate Jeremy's character in a way that wasn't really done prior to then because, frankly, the people that opposed what he stood for just didn't take him seriously enough. And they thought that the mm. public hated him and despised him as much as they did and therefore they would have to say and then it, it would get annihilated at the ballot box and then that would be that. So after that, they had to take him seriously. The Conservative Party... The machine that is the election winning machine that is Conservative Party kicked into gear after then and really I think dominated Facebook. I had people were seeing pages with tens of thousands of likes and huge reach that on the surface, they look just like apolitical pages. One of them was called, like, Parents' Choice. And it was about... Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, And it was like...
2: But well, that sounds like, like some anti-gay charity Tim Ferriss. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it does. But no, it was about education, about schools, right? Oh, and right, yeah. and, they, and they just posted stuff about education schools. They built up this community of parents who were concerned about the quality of education, paradoxically, because the conservatives were in government. And then as we approached an election, it was like, Corbyn wants to take your children out of the school they're in at the moment and put them somewhere else. All this bullshit, just complete nonsense, really. But they'd already built that trust with that community in those target seats. And then they were able to feed attack lines that were getting a lot of traction. And it wasn't just about education. It was about all sorts of things that they were completely misrepresenting what Jeremy stood for. And to say that the Labour Party is behind the curve of this kind of campaigning would be a massive understatement. And to believe that Keir Starmer is going to address this, which needs to be addressed now and urgently, I think is completely delusional. So, this is really where I think the assassination of Jeremy's character really cut through to people. It was the things that were circulating and targeted in key seats, in key areas of the country, on Facebook, on social media. And then usually it was very, very highly shareable content as well. I mean, a lot of it was completely false and completely fabricated and taking things that he said out of context. But that kind of thing after 2017, that really did build that picture, as you're talking about, of the perception of Jeremy rather than actually what he stood for. And people were only started to actually view him in a different way. And then look, things happened like the Salisbury poisoning, which I think, look, Jeremy wanted to see the evidence before we declared war on Russia and, and I think that that's <laughs> fair enough that, in my view that, you know that, that, that's fair enough but it was the way that it was used and it was leveraged mm. by those institutions that formally didn't take him seriously that Where's made him. there's that
0: tweet yeah. from around the time of the Salisbury thing from that horrible shithead Ian McKenzie who's named in the leaked Labour report for his obscene tweets about Emily Thornbury obscene like islamophobic sexist horrible tweets this guy tweeted around the time of that oh please stay in the party to some other right winger the stuff about the ira and iran didn't do anything but this stuff about salisbury and anti-semitism is really starting to cut through fuck yeah
1: (laughs) said quite a bit loud yeah and got away with it yeah
2: yeah i mean look i think those were the three things Those were the three Mm -hmm. things that made a difference to how people perceived Jeremy. What was the the, third thing? So there's anti-Semitism, Salisbury and Brexit. Brexit, Brexit. Oh yeah, Brexit,
0: yeah. Which which, which, goes uh, without saying.
2: (laughs) Which which we've now made the architect of that policy the leader of the party. So it just gave them such a get out of jail card to have an election over whether Brexit should happen or not. And that was exactly what we managed to avoid in 2017. So look... I don't think in the short term, the path to power is by ditching Corbyn's agenda at all. And frankly, I think a lot of the if you're ever going to have a leader again that has a radical agenda and is going to actually challenge the establishment and challenge the economic status quo, then you need to have a social media operation that is geared to fighting smears and is geared to actually talking directly to the people that we need to win over. And the Labour Party doesn't have that at the moment. In 2017, what masked it was the Facebook algorithm where we had momentum, which had tens of thousands of likes and the content was going straight into people's news feeds from pages. And then Facebook changed this after because they then said mm. people want to see things from their friends. So we're going to prioritize that in people's news feeds. So therefore, you don't get content from pages in your news feeds. And at, at that time, the independent newspaper was pretty supportive. It was probably the most left-wing newspaper at the time and they were just pumping out Labour policies all the time and that was getting huge traction on Facebook. So, so I think... John he...
0: Rental had been drinking Corbin Easter blood and it had gone to his head. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, maybe they're not so bad after all.
2: John was actually a bit of a red herring, I think, in Independent HQ because they were doing all the policies straight. They were getting huge traction on Facebook.
0: John Stone, haven't they? They've yeah.
2: John Stone, yeah. yeah. Ash, Ash- People Ash-Cover. always getting
0: stoned on the timeline these days. I love it. John Stone just comes... Comes in with some facts
2: like <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think that's what masked it in 2017 but in 2019 tories just see how they're miles ahead of us not just building up this kind of infrastructure but the content that they were developing the fact they were able to gain the algorithm targeting was better They were doing innovative stuff. I just find it very frustrating that a party had a huge amount of resources and we weren't able to adequately use them because of just complete structural inertia in Southside, in HQ. And until a leader is willing to get to grips with that culture of people turning up, doing a few hours of work maximum and then clocking off and not really thinking about anything they're doing in terms of what the end product is. And there's a massive cultural problem there of what people work into rule and clearly, from the Labour Leagues, people who are way too right-wing to be in the Labour Party. So, of course, yeah. they don't feel any passion about what they're trying to deliver. So, yes, I mean, the whole thing needs to be taken on. But Again, it doesn't seem like Keir is the person that's going to do that, because that's where the rights power base is. It's in the fact that so many of the employees in HQ are right wing.
0: Well yeah I definitely I would love to get into like the culture at HQ and the leaks and stuff I mean I, I was just going to say a, a, a minute ago what's kind of interesting so there was an Observer article that my phone just flagged up to me I almost said Guardian but obviously very very, very different papers okay the Observer is edited by the Bailiffs Association <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it was by the Toad Andrew Rawnsley who will always be known as the Toad Andrew Rawnsley to me because of what PTG, our friends, once called him. Um, <laughs> but it's like the Tories are struggling to make Starmer look bad. And I think the key word there is Starmer. (laughs) For all the talk about Corbynism being a cult, it seems that they're really trying to do this sort of presidential thing with Keir Starmer, this Joe Swinson style thing. I mean, Stephen Bush has written in his articles about how Starmer is doing great, everything he's doing is wonderful, but he's just getting dragged down by his awful vile party full of scum. And it really does seem that they accept that all the stuff said about the Corbyn era was right, and kind of let that judgement soak down until it has drenched the entire Labour Party whilst just saying, oh no, but is different, is good. So it's, it's certainly it's a very centralised way of doing things. It doesn't seem to be a member-first way because their current strategy seems to be kind of saying, yeah, a large portion of our membership are monsters and should be purged.
2: I read the Rawnsley
0: piece and the problem they've Poor got... You, I just read the headline. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The problem they've got is when they find something that sticks, as we just said, they didn't manage it in the first two years of Corbinism. But in four years, if Starmer becomes a very credible threat, it looks like Labour going to form a government. At the moment, 10 points behind. It's not making a difference. That, you know? Yeah, that's
0: what I was going to so, say. Like, even if Kia's personal ratings are... Uh, although it's actually deceptive how good his personal ratings are because it's mostly a reflection of how bad Corbyn's were. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just uh, people seeing him as an improvement. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, Labour's polling is not picking up massively, is it?
2: No, and then the time to do the attacks is a year before an election election. The Conservatives aren't going to apart from the odd jibe of PMQs, they're not going to launch any attacks or character assassination until at least a year or eighteen months before an election. So they're going to focus on their own agenda, and this is a government with an agenda, and they are going to actually do things. It's not like a coalition. By do things, I mean they're going to invest in different areas of the country, and they're not going to take the kind of Philip Hammond spreadsheet approach to the economy. They are going to to be a, a very, very different type of Conservative government, and unless we reckon with that, then we aren't going to be on the pitch. So I just don't think that... The Conservatives are going to be too worried about Starmer at the moment. I think if the polls change, maybe. If they start to really lag behind, then maybe. But I think the time to do that stuff is as we approach the election. And they will. And there's stuff that they will do. And they will do something. And and it will cut through. And already, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed that they're saying is that he can't make his mind up. And you have to yeah. say, based on a few things that have happened, it's like, well, yeah, they've got a bit of a point there, haven't they? And all, and, the people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the best attacks are the ones that ring true to an extent, and that will take time for them to form them. So the Rawnsley article, in conclusion, is very premature, and I think there will be things that they'll pick up on. And, look, people, want, if he's going to base his entire electoral strategy, not just his leadership, but his entire political strategy in order to get elected on perceptions of competence and leadership, then he has to be decisive and he has to be willing to take tough decisions. Those things are completely integral to that. So if he's seen to be wavering on things, it will completely undermine what he sees as his unique selling point.
0: I mean the stuff that he's getting credit for making tough decisions is all literally just the easiest decisions to make like if you're trying to appease the right wing press. Oh sack the left wing front bencher. what a tough decision to make if you're trying to like get the people on times radio to be nice to you next time they interview you you know really 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 took a stand there. So just going back in time slightly, not in this conversation, back in time to pre-2019, well 2019 itself even. Before the general election, Matt, what are your thoughts in retrospect on the Remain movement subsequent to the referendum, and you know the way that it was used by, say, the Observer? Because I, I mean, I mentioned earlier, but there was that you you have had a little a little maybe back and forth with the Observer for a while after you appeared on their podcast, and you said something like that they were the propaganda wing of Chris Leslie. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, I, I did, I did.
3: Yeah, you know, the Observer may be centrist on some things, but we're actually pretty radical when it comes to stuff like market reform. You know, we're quite interventionist if you look at our editorials on stuff like where, energy. Where would you stick them out? Um, where would you stick them on the, uh, <laughs> on the old uh, axis?
2: Uh, I think, of late, they it, it sort of looked a bit like the propaganda wing of Chris Leslie. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Wow, well that's <laughs> quite, you a charge. no, <laughs> quite a charge, quite a charge. No, know. but the
2: thing is, right, I understand the, the position that you have and understand, you know, you, you're against Brexit and that's fine, but this whole narrative about Corbyn should pin his colours to the mast at this stage, politically it would be complete suicide. And they were at the time, I mean, they were carrying any old shit Chris Leslie would say uh, <laughs> that week about how Jeremy's letting down young people by not, Going on the people's vote <laughs> march or whatever, some nonsense. <laughs> it was a campaign against. Obviously, there were. I think look, there were people that approached that in good faith, but they were they were radicalised. I think a lot of people radicalised. A lot of people were made to believe that this was possible, but actually, you look back and you think, what on earth were we ever thinking, taking this seriously? This was a, a referendum. Like to go into an election saying that you want to do the referendum again. I mean, it's Mm. it's just the most ridiculous policy. And look, there were no good good ways, there were no good outcomes really for Labour because we had backed ourselves into a corner by consistently voting against the deal. We should have just voted for the deal or abstained. We should have got a concession and then said, we're going to now abstain. And then it would have gone through and then we would have had an election on the domestic agenda. And actually that would have precipitated an election because The DUP would have then said, Well, the backstop is in that deal, we're gonna withdraw support for the government and then that would have been it, the government would have collapsed. But instead we were like, Oh, we're gonna vote against the deal, keep voting against the deal and hopefully the government will somehow collapse and it never it never did. So then we
1: well, were in a position,
0: People are so fickle about this shit. I remember in 2017, early 2017, not the fun bit, when Labour voted for Article 50. And you know, people were resigning from the shadow cabinet. Remain MPs were saying, I'll lose my seat if I don't vote mm. against Labour's whip on this one. You know, I was meeting people at parties and shit who'd been like very into Corbyn and they were all... I went to a Navara event where nobody was talking about Corbyn and Corbynism. Because partly the Article 50 thing had disillusioned so many people. A couple of months later, they called a general election. Nobody gave a fuck anymore apart from, like, the Remain headbangers, you know? So, I I mean, I think there's an element of truth to what you're saying that they could have, you know. I think that really they had to put in the ideological groundwork after 2017 to say, look, our policy worked. Like, this is the right position to have. We're not headbangers on Brexit, but we're not going to stand in the way of the result either.
2: They could have voted against the deal but only on the basis that they argued that only Labour can deliver Brexit. And we didn't argue that, and we couldn't argue that because we would have just created a massive internal backlash and we weren't prepared to do that which I think maybe that was a mistake as well. Maybe we should have been a lot more, would have fit with Jeremy, what we were, you know, we're trying to be anti-establishment. We're trying to look like insurgents. Maybe it would have fit with that a lot more if we had created an antagonism with our own party. But um, yeah. if we weren't going to say that we were the only ones who could deliver Brexit, then we should have just abstained on the deal and, and let it go through. And then exactly as you say, everyone would have moved on in a few months. That would have been that. It would have been then let's get on and resolve the housing crisis. Now that's out the way. That would have been it. And actually, I think the government would have fallen. So I think there were mistakes. And I think 2017 was a blessing and a curse because we almost became, almost felt like we were so close to forming a government that we didn't want to rock mm. the boat too much after. Yeah.
0: It. Whereas yeah, before, yeah, you we can felt see, like we had yeah. nothing to lose. Absolutely. That's so true. So after the 2017 election, then remain kind of it became like the rallying cry of everyone with a grievance against the left who wasn't like an overtly right-wing brexiteer Mm. um so it is fascinating what you were saying about the observer being the propaganda arm of chris leslie because nobody was putting it in as kind of personalized terms then whereas you pointed out at the time Well, look, you're basically just uncritically printing whatever this disgruntled right-wing Labour MP who, in retrospect, was about to quit the party is saying to you and taking it completely at face value when it's clearly just like a reputation laundering exercise because he's on the outs with the Labour Party and people like Chris Leslie and Chuka were having to like try and build a new political base And I I thought that maybe that they'd try and build something outside the Labour Party. I mean, I guess they did. Those two in particular did try that and failed absolutely terribly. Although if you view their true goal as to stop Corbyn getting into number 10, then they didn't fail. They succeeded. But ultimately, I think some of that new coalition, that new political coalition that these people on the right of at least Labour politics tried to use Brexit to... That did almost lay some of the groundwork for Starmerism. I think so, yeah. I think it did. I think a lot
2: of those people joined the Labour Party. A lot of the People's Vote database, which was, of course, as we know, the people involved with People's Vote, many of them were former Labour HQ employees mentioned in the Labour leaks, talking with each other about the result in 2017 with absolute dismay. So, look, it was a a project. The People's Vote became, I think, there were people involved with that campaign who were engaged in completely good faith. So I don't mean to besmirch them. I mean, there are people for whom remaining in the EU is very important, fair enough. It's their right in a democratic country to make that mm-hmm. argument. But there's, let's make no mistake about it. There were people in the upper echelons of that campaign who were doing so to wage factional war in the Labour Party, but outside of it. So yeah. the relationship between the People's Vote and Keir Starmer's leadership campaign very interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, people joined the Labour Party, lots of people joined the Labour Party after Jeremy Corbyn announced he was going to resign. And those people we we assume would have voted for not the left candidate. So the makeup of the memberships changed as well. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I thought in terms of going to the Starmer campaign, I thought that you worked on Rebecca Long-Bailey's campaign. Presumably she was not swimming in corporate donations. I'm sure you can confirm that. Um, yeah, um, I can I can
2: confirm it. And, and look, I, I don't mean to say this out of like making excuses or sour grapes or anything like that, but it is a fact that the Starmer campaign was operating on three times the budget of the Rebecca campaign, and yeah. that's why everyone got a poster of Kier through the post, and that's why I did
0: yeah, straight in the bed. Yeah, <laughs> In the special filing cabinet, as I believe you, you once described... Uh, I think you described Jeremy Corbyn's bin as that once. When some <laughs> turf gave him a load of flyers, you were like, he'll be putting that in the special filing cabinet. <laughs> um, Excellent. But I just want to go to this article from our friends from the Daily Mail, because there was a particular... It, written, in fact, by Harry Cole, the most cucked man in the world. But this article, I think, this shows that there was a particular source of money money in Keir Starmer's campaign that may be particularly dear to your heart but not in a positive way. This is headlined Abhorrent Bookie Funded Sir Keir. Sir Keir Starmer's leadership campaign was bankrolled by the head of a betting firm his own aide has branded morally abhorrent. Carolyn Harris who said that who you've worked with a lot on your anti-gambling campaigns and yeah he accepted £25,000 from Peter Coates one of the founders of the controversial online bookmakers Bet365 and I mean I won't go through the whole article but I just think it's a really sad state of affairs when big money donors are accepted in the Labour Party again. I, I, I ho- really hoped in the Corbyn era that we'd move beyond that. And it, you know, it must be particularly troubling to you to see people exploiting gambling addicts uh, who, yeah. who are contributing uh, this money. I think
2: that's the thing that a lot of us, well, not us on on this podcast, but lots of people I think <laughs> may have taken for granted is just how clean the funding was under Corbyn's leadership and, you know, I always say union funding is the cleanest money in politics. And I just I wonder whether maybe the Labour Party under Starmer will end up relying more on corporate donations than it will on Unite. And then how does that influence the policy agenda? How does that influence the party's trajectory and its positioning? Of course it therefore has to be orientated towards appeasing certain sections of capital. So, you know, it's it's a shame. I hope that the Bet Three Six Five donation doesn't influence labour policy on gambling, but who's to say that it won't? And that's the real shame of it. And then I actually think it stopped us taking a moral high ground on the Robert Jenrick thing. And the Robert Gem- yes, and the Robert Jenrick thing was really bubbling away. And Starmer didn't call for his resignation, and then he sacked Rebecca. So like, yeah. and then that knocked it off the news agenda so like totally. I, I do think that this will be a problem you know how do you create i mean it is the i suppose it signals a departure from left populism but it's like Does it how, signals
0: a departure from the left i think you know i think yeah. it is just leftism 101 you're not funded by big money
2: yeah you know? i agree I, I i agree i think it inevitably will have an influence and big money isn't going to want to fund you if you're left so it's well, it's symbiotic isn't Absolutely. it Absolutely. so yeah it doesn't
0: bode well so, Matt, I don't want to keep you all night, so I was going to ask you a couple of things. Firstly, is there anything that you think we haven't addressed that you would like to mention?
2: No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think this has been, very, a... it's been very good.
0: Excellent. Well, I think that for, like, one thing we haven't got into too much, so I'll, ju- I'll just ask you a bit to, like say you've worked alongside some people who are getting a lot of very very negative press at the moment and these people getting negative press isn't anything new and you've got negative press alongside them in the past when you were working with them but when you see these incredibly deeply personal attacks on people like Jeremy Corbyn like Seamus Milne like James Schneider who's a friend of all of ours. What do you think about that? Like I thought maybe you'd want just to take the opportunity to say who these people really are.
2: Well they're all people of huge integrity and very kind and all of them are very, everyone who I know on the left is fundamentally what you would describe as a quote-unquote good person who just wants to improve the country and make life better for everyone and particularly people who struggle the most and that should be completely legitimate in a democratic society. And what I find abhorrent with the way that these people are attacked and maligned by the establishment media, which serves as a propaganda arm for capital, is that they think it's their job to delegitimize the left. But that is not the role of the media. That should not be the role of the media. It should not be the role of the media to exclude the left from public life or public debate and to relentlessly attack these people. This is a democratic country, and the left have a right to exist and to influence policies and to influence how this country is run, and it will continue to do so. But it can only do so effectively if everyone stays in the Labour Party. So everyone, please, please remain in the ah. Labour Party, and we will we will ride again.
0: A concluding message. Yeah, I th- see, I think that's good, because, you know, I think real politic at the moment, it should be open to people both who are saying stay in labor and those who are saying let's not because i'm uh, a bit on the fence but as i say i have not left the party just yet Garaint, I don't believe, has actually left the party yet. I have
1: given myself a six-month countdown by by cancelling the direct (laughs) debit, so I'll see how it goes. There's a good chance that (laughs) Starmer might be on the fucking brink by then, to be fair, so we'll see what
2: happens. (laughs) I'll check in again in five months, just to make sure. So so actually, been sort of... Approaching the end of the year So at Christmas I'll give you a call On Christmas Day If that, ne- we'll
1: if the the that next Christmas episode Isn't the, the final push Then we've failed as a podcast ultimately
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well you know Wherever I am politically I'll always have solidarity with people like Matt People like Jeremy Corbyn on the Labour left, who mm-hmm. diligently working for a better world in a party that fucking hates us. I mean, what <laughs> what, what can you what can you say? Like someone's got to do it. The party would be worse if there weren't any left wingers in it. It's almost like the Lloyd Russell-Moyle issue. Like you know, yes, I would rather my socialist campaign group MPs weren't landlords. <laughs> but on the other hand, were my landlord a socialist campaign group MP? I would probably prefer that to some kind of bloodless capitalist with no kind of left wing, no morals of any sort. So it's kind of similar with the Labour Party, although it may not always be the most hospitable environment for the left without any leftists in it. It really is not the positive force it can sometimes be.
2: I completely agree. And actually, for what it's worth, a lot of the people that you mentioned get attacked for coming from wealth and means and whatever. But I have a lot of respect for people who choose to devote their lives to trying to enact socialist change and advance the cause of socialism, Well, they don't have to, they don't have to do that. They could just sit back and, or, you know, buy up loads of property and rent it out and sit on, sit on their asses for the rest of their lives, but they don't do that. They have a huge amount of passion and belief in trying to improve other people's lives. And I find it astonishing. As Owen Jones always used to say, you know, if you're a leftist and you're poor, then they'll say that you're politics of envy. If you're a leftist and rich, then they'll call you a hypocrite. So you can never win. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. So have you donated to the Jeremy Corbyn crowdfunding, Matt?
2: I have, yes, yeah, very.
0: Ah, oh, excellent. It was, it was actually,
2: it was, it was, it was very therapeutic. I, I found. I, I recommend it for anyone listening.
0: Nice. I was just thinking because what you said about if you're rich, they'll call you a hypocrite. If you're poor, they'll call you fucking jealous or whatever. Yeah, very much. You've seen a lot of oh Jeremy Corbyn's a wealthy MP kind of stuff the last <laughs> few days. Like, yeah, they genuinely believe he's just got this big like water park style slide in his house that just like funnels money from Iran directly into. To his his bed he just wakes up every day lying in a new pile of iranian cash
2: <laughs> well like the, the, this whole narrative about jeremy being wealthy is predicated on the fact that he's lived in this house for many years decades and it's, it happens to have gone up in value because it's in north london which is yeah. in this constituency and the people saying we shouldn't donate to the crown Fund, they presumably think that corbyn should wait till he gets sued require extensive legal support to defend himself and then sell his house i mean it's just like <laughs> they, 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 would, they would rather you know they want they want him to be destitute it's just they want him to really suffer i think it's very spiteful yeah um, but uh, yeah plus a charge
0: <laughs> well that's like that i think that's a good like salty moment to go out on Matt, it's been fantastic talking to you Like, I've, mm-hmm. I've had a really good chat I'm sorry that I fucked off for five minutes to buy drugs <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, That's fine by me, Jack No worries
0: yeah. <laughs> No, it's been awesome, man, and we'll yeah. we'll have you on again sometime because yeah, it's been it's been great fun,
2: definitely nice one.
0: But, but yeah, Matt, you know, man, keep on boiling that piss because it's wonderful. You know, as I said earlier, like, I love that you've been just in beast mode recently. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's been great to witness. we
2: <laughs> uh, will do. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, and uh, really enjoyed the chat. So yeah, yeah. Man. catch you soon.
0: Cheers for coming on, Matt, and uh, yeah, solidarity, comrade you too take care awesome everyone check out Matt what's the name of the campaign
2: oh please check out CleanUp Gambling it's cleanupgambling.com and uh, it's on Twitter and Facebook thanks a lot mate
0: excellent great stuff man wow, that was a great episode I think wow. so yeah
2: yeah bring me champagne when I'm
3: thirsty
0: like i just got a message from uh, a a tweet from friends of pudding Uh, it was like have you heard the shouting matches Uh, and this is a band apparently but i just skimmed it and was like oh no he's heard the latest episode he's disturbed by all the bits where i'm just insanely yelling about milk (laughs) that's the (laughs) next (laughs) bit. certainly isn't anyone listens I was so riled up in that episode, man. Like, it's genuinely. Like, I didn't find it too disturbing to listen to because I was just laughing at myself the whole time. Like, man, this guy is shook. <laughs>
3: Okay. It's tech, it's
2: exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.